The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. Good afternoon. This is Steve Orlins, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and today I'm joined by Michael Green. Michael is now the Senior Vice President for Asia and the Japan Chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and Chair in Modern and Contemporary Japanese Politics and Foreign Policy at the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. I first got to know him when he was on the National Security Council, right. which was probably about 15 years ago. Uh, 10, 50, yeah, 15 years ago until 10 years ago. Until 10 years ago. He has just completed an extraordinarily thorough Book, which is called By More Than Providence. It's, and the subtitle is Grand Strategy in American Power in the Asia Pacific Since 1783. It is really a tour de force and takes you from the very beginning of U.S. involvement in Asia right after the American Revolution to uh, today. And it kind of has themes that are repetitive. So, why? What made you? write this book? What kind of, and how long did it take? It took me almost 10 years. Um, I was on the National Security Council staff in the White House for almost five years. And when I came back to teach at Georgetown and work in a think tank, you know, I wanted to write a book and I didn't want to write a kiss and tell book. And I wasn't really that interested in political science anymore for, for the time being. And the big question I always was asking myself as I was writing st strategy documents for the president, for the Pentagon, speeches for the president, I mean, that's sort of, that is grand strategy. I was writing that stuff. And the thing I kept asking myself that no one could answer was, where did all this come from? We assert free trade is good and have for some time. We talk about forward presence in the Asia Pacific. We talk about the importance of the one China policy. Um, but there's no institutional memory in the U.S. government, especially about strategy. So I decided... Um, uh, to look for the, the book that would teach me that, and I couldn't find it. So I said, well, you know, how hard can this be? And eight, nine years ago, I started this project that took me into the archives. I interviewed almost every living assistant secretary and secretary and national security advisor and defense and, secretary. And that shows in the book. Yeah, and I really, I just got sucked into the archives. It was fascinating. And what I found was that unlike what most people assume or are taught, that somehow we inherited our position in Asia after World War II, from the very beginning of the American Republic, people thought hard about this and about some of the same hard problems. So I started in 1783 because that's when Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter to Colonel George Rogers Clark on the frontier at the end of the American Revolution warning that the British were sending an expedition to try to control the Pacific Northwest. And Jefferson knew, like many of the founding fathers, about trade with Canton, about the Pacific Northwest, about the sea trade, about the sandalwood in the Hawaiian Islands, and um, said we have to stop them, we have to counter this. And it's a strategic thought, and it's a document, and that's the beginning of the story. Mm -hmm. What year did the Empress of China then go? To? It was the next year. It was the next and year. And by the then, yeah, Robert Morris, who um, was uh, the banker. The Empress of China was the clipper ship that was clipper from ship, um, to Canton. Yeah, fr from New York, and they made a 400% profit selling ginseng from what's now kind of Pennsylvania and, and West Virginia. 400% profit. And where else could they trade? The British Empire had just kicked them out. Mm -hmm. So Asia was the future. China was the future. And by the early 19th century, there were as many, there were as many Americans trading in Canton as there were British. Uh, Yankee ingenuity. 
Um, so that's how it started, but pretty soon we had to start thinking about how we keep the Pacific open, how we stop other European powers from breaking up China. And uh, so it goes back quite a ways. We don't always do it well, and a lot of the book is right. what we did wrong. Exactly. But, um, but I think it's important to understand that um, Americans have always had a kind of optimism, um, but a determination about uh, the Asia-Pacific and about China. What are the takeaways? Obviously, we're going through a, a, a learning curve with mm -hmm. the new administration. If someone in the new administration is reading this book, what are the takeaways that they should have? Well, the, the main takeaway, I think they already know, which is that the United States will not abide a hegemonic power trying to push us out of the Pacific. Um, and that challenge is now China. So they got that part. And I think they also get um, that you need some military power. Um, and a forward military presence um, to uh, protect your interests and stop a rising power from destabilizing the region. There's a lot of stuff they don't get that they would learn from this book. For example, um, trade matters a lot. And in the 19th century, we were protectionists. But our success after the Second World War was based on our open markets and our opening of markets. And the current team is not interested in, in that right now. Um, the other lesson they should learn, I think, is that while some people argue human rights, democracy is sort of a political extraneous thing and really we need to be hard-headed realists and not worry about those, from Thomas Jefferson on, when American leaders, strategists, naval officers, um, missionaries, when they thought about the Pacific, they thought about how states are governed and that matters to us. And in the Pacific, unlike the old world, unlike Europe, Empires were collapsing. Nation states were being born. Nation states were being defined. Um, and we had some influence on that. So the Trump administration has not found its voice on democracy, and they've not found their voice, or in some ways they've, they've been quite negative on trade, whether it's the bilateral investment treaty with China or the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP. But when I look back at history, history doesn't tell you what will happen, but it does show you that American interests, domestic and in the region, are going to push this president towards thinking about trade, development, democracy in ways that almost all his predecessors had to at some point. Yeah. Well, the book is certainly not a kiss and tell. It does kind of meld the personalities that have kind of played a role in Asia policy with the policy. Right. There really is lots of discussion of who was doing what to whom, which I found, since I know, certainly in the modern era, I know virtually every person yeah. who's played a role. I thought it was very interesting that at one point you write that George Shultz was the best Secretary of State on Asia. Tell the listener why. Well, our success in Asia has depended on a combination of effective trade policy, which in the modern era means essentially free trade, um, robust support for a military forward presence and allies, um, weaving our values, democracy and human rights, into our policy, um, uh, and managing what many, many Americans have found difficult, the Japan-China um, situation. You know, what's the center of Asia, Japan or China? Schultz did all of those. Um, he was very pro-Japan. He stood for and, and brought about democratic change in the Philippines and in Korea and Taiwan. <coughs> um, he believed in human rights and democracy, but he managed the U.S.-China relationship very skillfully. Um, we had good, under Reagan, we had good, great relations with Japan, and by the end of the Reagan administration, we were selling weapons to China. 
Um, so, so Schultz, I interviewed him for an hour in his San Francisco apartment, and he, <laughs> he took me to the balcony and said, you like the Pacific? And I said, yes, Mr. Secretary, I do. And he opened the window and he said, there it is. And he proceeded to tell me how, as a Princeton senior, he chose as a senior project studying Asia. Right. And he joined the Marines so he could go to Asia. And then Nixon, when he was quite junior in the White House, sent him to meet Lee Kuan Yew to learn about Asia. So it also shows that actually understanding this region is not a bad idea for a senior policymaker. I also love some of the characterizations that you have of, of the policymaking. And, and this one particularly jumped out at me. The strategic debate in the Clinton administration resembled more of an unruly scrum as bad ideas were sorted out, and the economic and national security realists steadily asserted themselves. Talk a little bit about what was going on, how you viewed their making of policy at well, that point. This Obviously, is, you were not, you, at that point, you had not joined the NSA. No, I was just finishing my PhD work. Um, but the Clinton administration is instructive when we think about the Trump administration. I, I, I think what Bill Clinton did as president was unruly, was chaotic, was poorly uh, managed, was undisciplined, but was kind of brilliant, probably a bit like Bill Clinton himself. He uh, came in with a very hard-line policy on China, as you'll recall, right. trying to um, condition MFN, uh, MFN most favored yeah. nation with human rights, and a very hard line on Japan, trying to link diplomatic cooperation with Japan, opening its market. And these were all based on theories uh, of people who had not been in government much. Um, and, you know, within about two years, he dropped it all. And by the end of his presidency, he had uh, brought China into the WTO, or, or reached the U.S.-China agreement on WTO accession, which was historic. Uh, and he had um, reaffirmed um, and expanded the alliance with Japan to cover broader missions and geographic areas to balance China. So it was a very um, uh, critical set of uh, policies. Um, but uh, but he entertained wild ideas. There was there, you know the NSC meetings were described to me as academic seminars, <laughs> and you know, why you know it's relevant today because Donald Trump, I don't think he has quite the contextual intelligence or the the intellectual curiosity of Bill Clinton. But there are clearly contradictions and theories that don't make sense and statements that don't make sense, and the reality of American interests mean that bad ideas get sorted out in new governments, and I think that will probably happen and may already be happening with uh, with Donald like Trump. The, the one China policy. Yeah, brought back one China policy. On, on tariffs are off. Threatened not to defend Japan Korea if they didn't pay for it, but he reaffirmed in the strongest terms his commitment to both. Um, so things are getting straight. Things are getting a little straighter. I, he's a different president, um, uh, so I'm not sure it'll be quite like the Clinton administration. But there's a certain um, there's a certain agency. The, the, the personalities, their strategic ideas are really important, but. In the end, the ones that matter are the ones that conform best with the reality we face in Asia mm -hmm. and with our domestic interests. And our interests are strong. The in book the has a nice section um, at the end of the Clinton administration on the Perry mission to North Korea. You think that's relevant today? Uh, only in that it wouldn't work today. That it wouldn't work. It would not work. That um, kind of the, the deal with getting North Korea, uh, getting yeah. South Korea and Japan to provide economic aid combined. Nah, with that, that day has passed. And I was uh, at the Council on Foreign Relations then running a task force on North Korea policy. And we had a bipartisan group of hawkish Republicans and uh, liberal Democrats who all agreed we should support Perry. Uh, he did two big things. He created a U.S.-Japan-Korea trilateral coordination group, which was really critical. And he reached out to the North Koreans and tried. That wouldn't work now. Um, Kim Jong-un is a different leader, and they are now racing to get their nuclear weapons and missiles done and deliverable. 
and what should then the Trump policy, you know, all options are on the table. What, if, what does that mean to you? Well, um, I think that that is the kind of declaratory policy that we're not ruling out any uh, weapons or tools, including nuclear. I think that's exactly what Hillary Clinton would have said or Jeb Bush would have said, mm -hmm. because we have to reinforce deterrence. We have to make it clear we will not be intimidated and that we will stand by our allies and defend them. Now, what you actually do beyond that is a very hard question. I don't think, even if all options are on the table, the option of a preemptive strike is likely at all. Um, I think probably they are now looking at um, putting in place more effective sanctions. This will affect U.S.-China relations because that means secondary sanctions against Chinese companies. It's going to be tough in U.S.-China relations, but the argument's going to have to be, and I suspect Rex Tillerson said this to the Chinese uh, a few weeks ago, uh, look, we have to defend ourselves. We have to slow down their program. We have to deploy missile defense. You don't like it? We're sorry. Um, it Maybe it'll incentivize Beijing to do more, but whether it does or doesn't, we're not in the phase anymore of talking Kim Jong-un out of nuclear weapons. We now have to defend ourselves, slow down his progress, and take you know mitigating steps, which will, as I said, stress U.S.-China relations. So managing and understanding U.S.-China relations is critical. It's going to be more tension, but we've had relations before, Theodore Roosevelt with Japan at the turn of the century, where there was tension, but he had the vision to understand that we needed to respect Japan, we needed to build cooperative patterns of behavior. Today's discussion has just given you a taste of what is in Michael Green's new book, By More Than Providence, for anyone who is interested in U.S. foreign policy towards Asia. It is a must read, and in its addition, it is a wonderful read. Good, thank Congratulations you. on a great book. And to all of our listeners, I suggest you go out and buy it and read it. Thank Thanks you. very much, Steve. Great Enjoyed to it. have you.